Perhaps you have seen this on a church sign or somewhere along the way in your online travels. <clears throat> no God, that is K-N-O-W, no God, no peace. No God, N-O, no God, no peace. Would you say that you today, as you peruse the landscape of your life, are at peace? What we have in front of us in Exodus chapter 5 this morning is hardly a peaceful situation. In fact, it's an escalating, tension-filled narrative. None of the players is truly at peace, and there's a reason for that. None of them really know God. Everyone has some learning to do. Pray. Father, as we come before you now, Lord, we do so humbly because we know we have some learning to do as well. And we want to know you. We want to hear your voice. We want to feel your power. We, we want to know you better. We pray, Lord, that you'll help that to happen. And these minutes to follow in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when we last heard of the Israelites, we came to the conclusion of chapter 4, wrapped up with kind of a, a nice and joyful ending. They had believed the word of God that Moses and Aaron had spoken to them. And not only had they believed, but the scripture says they had bowed down and they worshipped God. So one might conclude from that point that things are about to start looking up. For the Israelites, right? I mean, because when people don't know God and they finally find God, isn't that when everything in life begins to improve? Well, some things, yes, but not everything that we wish. In fact, in truth, always in the interest of full disclosure, right? Sometimes things actually get worse. For people who dare to live by faith. Jesus tells a story, and Matthew records it in the 13th chapter of his gospel. It's known as the parable of the sower. Some call it the parable of the soils. He says a sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seeds. They fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, and where they did not have much soil... Immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, the disciples had ears to hear, but they didn't exactly know what Jesus was talking about. So they asked him to explain it. And he said, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. 
As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. I want you to notice what happens to the seed that's sown along the path. The evil one comes and snatches it away so that it cannot take root. James tells us that we are to receive the word of God implanted in our hearts. But sometimes that word comes to us and the enemy comes and snatches it away so that it won't get in there, so that it won't do its work. And by the way, the enemy here is, is Satan, whom the Bible proclaims as a real being, as a true and dangerous threat, an adversary to all believers. Notice also what happens to the seed that's sown on rocky ground. It begins to grow, and it, door, it endures, the Bible says, for just a bit. But then trouble comes on account of the word. And it, that would be the person who receives the, the word with joy, who believes it first, it falls away. In our text this morning, God has delivered his word to Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron. Let my people go. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a fast to me in the wilderness. What does Pharaoh say to this? Well, he says, no, absolutely not. He blatantly disregards this, this message of God to him. He has no interest in it whatsoever. Maybe right away we can take away from this text the realization as Moses and Aaron are finding out that faithfully speaking of the, the word of God doesn't guarantee that anyone's going to listen to it. Faithfully speaking, the word of God doesn't, doesn't guarantee that anyone's going to listen to it or that anyone is going to believe it or necessarily that anyone is going to follow it, which would lead some of us to say, why bother to speak it? And the reason is because we are commanded to. So the issue for us is one of obedience, not results, Right? God's responsible for the results. God will take care of the results. We must simply do what he commands us to do. That's what Moses and Aaron are doing here. They're not taking responsibility, or they ought not, for the results. Now, maybe when Pharaoh said no, this kind of surprised Moses, although it really shouldn't have, because God had already told him. If you go back to chapter 3 and verse 19, you will see that God has already told Moses, I know that the king of Egypt is not going to let my people go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And nothing has happened yet to compel Pharaoh to let the people go. Why should he release all of his free labor in response to the demand of a God he has never even heard of. It's ludicrous. It doesn't make any sense. And so he says, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? No, that's not an unreasonable question, is it? It's really the same thing that Moses wanted to know when he was spoken to by God out of the burning bush. What's your name? Who are you? If you're calling me... Uh, to be sent to these people, whom shall I say is sending me? It's not an unreasonable question. But the difference between Moses and Pharaoh here is that Moses was willing to know God and wanting to know God. But Pharaoh has no interest whatsoever in God. 
His question, who is the Lord, is not an honest question. It's not a sincere question. He's not seeking to understand. In other words, it's not as if Moses and Aaron could have said to him, well, sit down for a second, Pharaoh, and let me, figure, let me tell you about this God of the Hebrews. And then he would say, oh, thanks for letting me know. Now I believe. There's no interest in believing. Why? He's got enough gods. He knows all about the Egyptian deities. He himself considers himself to be a god. He doesn't need another god. By the way, if the Hebrews have a God, he must not be a very big God. Because he really hasn't done anything. There's no sign of him anywhere in all of Pharaoh's life. If the Hebrews had a God, where's he been? If he's powerful enough to deliver them, why hasn't he done it to this point? You can see why Pharaoh might have some doubts. And why he would say no and not believe. As long as he's been alive, he's never heard of this God of the Hebrews. So in his mind, the Israelites don't belong to that God. The Israelites belong to him. They are his. They are his property. They are his to do with as he pleases. In fact, he, he views this demand that is made on him uh, as a lie. In verse 9, we see that. Um, that puts us back, I think, to the Garden of Eden, right? Where where the serpent says to Eve, did God really say? It's always Satan's job to cast dispersion on the word of God. To say that's not true. What God says is not true. And here Pharaoh's doing the same thing. He calls it a lie. But not only does he think it's a lie, he thinks it's a ruse. The only reason you guys want to go out into the wilderness is because you want some time off. You're lazy. Back to work. Back to work building my kingdom. You must have too much time on your hands. Sit around and dream up these silly ideas. So he says, no, you can't go. But not only does he say, no, he follows it up with a decree. And a decree that is completely unreasonable. But tyrants aren't really known for their reason, are they? And Pharaoh isn't either. If there was ever any question about who's in charge, about who has power, who has control, Pharaoh's saying, I'm going to clear it up right now. I'm going to take care of it right now. He commands the taskmasters, the people, the foremen, to tell the people, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks. As in the past, let them go and gather straw for themselves. But don't change the number of bricks that they're supposed to be making. That same number they have to make. They're only asking to go because they're lazy. They're idle. That's why they want to sacrifice to their God. How dare they even dream about liberation? How dare they even think about taking a few days off? I'm going to make it harder for them. Tell them to get back to work. And here we have it, the trouble that comes because of being faithful to the word of the Lord. Moses and Aaron are faithful to do what God told them to do. And now look what's happened. I mean, life for the Hebrews has been tough, but now it's even tougher. It would have been better if they said nothing at all. They've actually gone from bad to worse. And so we are reminded and should not forget, beloved, that faithfulness can lead to problems. That if you are doing the right thing, you won't always be rewarded for it. In fact, it often brings trouble. 
How's everyone going to respond to this turn of events? Well, one commentator puts it like this. He said, the command from Pharaoh went down the chain and the complaints went up. And that's how it works, right? If you've ever worked in a corporation, that is how it works in every good corporation, right? Orders come from HQ. Come down to the middle managers. Middle managers take those orders to the line workers. The line workers respond back to the middle managers, who then have to bring the complaints back to HQ. Who would ever want to be a middle manager? You know what they say about the person who walks down the middle of the road, he gets hit by, from both sides. That's, that's why not to walk in the middle of the road. You know? Get on one side or the other. Get in or get out. But the middle managers are going to take the heat here. They sure do. They, they do. They actually get beaten in this story. So the Egyptian taskmasters informed the Hebrew foreman who told the Israelite slaves that they had to manufacture as many bricks but, but without the supplies that had previously been given to them. And you heard me right, the Hebrew foreman. Let's stop just for a second and um, revel in the brilliance of Pharaoh and what he has done in creating this top-down um, machine that he has. He's actually put some of the Israelites to work in a foreman position. Why would he do such a thing? Because he's smart. Because he knows if he can get some of those Israelites up a tier, get them to the place where they're not doing all the work but are able to commandeer some of the work and, and be a boss, give them something to live for, he can, he can influence those younger Israelites. Listen, if you pay attention and if you follow the ways of Egypt and if you do what I want you to do, there's something in it for you. We're going to get you up a level, Okay. We're going we're gonna to make it good for you. What does that do? All that ever does is cause hate and discontent among the Hebrews. Because some of them are breaking their backs out in the hot sun to get the work done. And some of them are for whatever reason above them. Pharaoh has pretty much made it so that these Israelites will never get together and never talk about their plight. In the old days, in the way old days, when we had lots of immigrants and came over in places like Bethlehem Steel, we had lots of people speaking foreign languages, and the bosses could boss them around, and they could never get together to talk about the injustices or the problems or things that were being perpetrated on them, and the bosses liked it that way. That's why... One reason unions came into being, and I'm not talking politically now to asking what you think about unions. They are fraught with peril at this point, but once upon a time, right? Because if you can divide people, they don't get together and they don't have power. And the Hebrews were not getting together and saying to one another, this is a bad deal. We should do something about this. Pharaoh's brilliant. So the bad news comes down the line. And the, the slaves are told, you've got to make the same number of bricks, but you're not getting any supplies. Have any of you ever worked on a quota system before? Anybody had a quota that you had to fill? <laughs> right. You wonder where the heck those numbers come from sometimes. I mean, sometimes they make sense, but sometimes this is ridiculous. And here's a case where it's ridiculous. Now, to their credit, they tried. They scattered all over the place looking for the straw that they needed to make the bricks, but of course they couldn't do it. It's humanly impossible to do what they were told to do, and so they fall short. And as a result, the Hebrew foremen are beaten. 
When they're beaten, they go back and they appeal to Pharaoh. And they say, listen, this is because of your erroneous expectation that you put on us um, that, this, that this shortfall is occurring. Why are you beating us? And they thought maybe Pharaoh would say, you know what, I overreacted. You're right, I had a bad day. You caught me at a bad time. Let me change that back. That's not what he says at all. He doesn't care. He says, get back to work. Because his only interest in the Israelites is what they can produce. He doesn't care about them. He cares about what they can do for him. And in this way, he kind of images the world, doesn't he? He images, he images godlessness, where people are not, people are not seen as, as intrinsically valuable, bearing the image of God, having worth but really are seen as pawns, as means to, to an end. When you don't have God, you, you, don't, you don't necessarily see the image of God in people and the value and worth for who they are. You just use them. And that's what Pharaoh is doing. That's what he is doing. He images the world. The world is relentless. The world is an insatiable Lord. Okay? doesn't matter how much you have. If you're of the world, it's not enough. He stands in contrast to God. You know what God is saying here? God is saying, come away, take a break, rest for a little bit and worship me. That's what God is saying. Come to me. Come out for a few days. We're going to rest and worship me because that's what you were created for. But Pharaoh's like many employers today. They're chasing the, the almighty buck. And, and he has no interest in anyone's physical or spiritual well-being. He, he is obsessed with his own building programs. He only wants more bricks so he can have bigger buildings, so he can have bigger cities, so he can have a greater legacy. It's all about him. He tells those people, you just need to get back to work. Now, that wasn't what they wanted to hear, of course. And on the way out of Pharaoh's court, they meet Moses and Aaron, and they deliver sharp words to them. The Lord, look on you and judge, they said, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. You've put a sword in his hand to kill us. So there's no question here in the text who these guys blame for the predicament they're in, right? Moses and Aaron, you are the ones to blame. They cursed them. And here we are reminded and taught, I guess, that faithfully following God's will in your life doesn't mean others are always going to appreciate it. You can be on the right course and you can do the right thing and sometimes people are going to misunderstand it. They're going to misinterpret it. They're going to come at you with venom and anger and they're going to make you the problem. But it's not you. You're just doing what God said was the right thing to do. I suppose it's easier to be mad with men than with God. And we know that even in the middle of spiritual warfare, and that's what this is, we are so slow to recognize spiritual warfare. We personify problems. We wrestle as if it were flesh and blood. But the scripture is very clear. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. But we just have this tendency as humans that we've got to blame somebody. We've got, to, we've got to ascribe blame somewhere. We have to personify the problems. We have to vilify someone. And that's why faithfulness can sometimes bring problems for godly leaders. Especially if the direction that they lead in is, is controversial, or if it is unpopular, or if it is costly to any of their followers. 
The writer of Hebrews says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy. Amen. Let them do it with joy and not with groaning. That would be of no advantage to you. Leadership shouldn't be accompanied by groaning. But it often is. It often is because opposition from within the ranks of God's people is a doggone common. And it is hard for a leader to bear opposition from within. Harder than even persecution from without. The friendly fire that Christian leaders take is much more painful, I think, than the pot shots that the heathen lob at us. Even more painful than the at times in the fiery darts of the enemy. To be hurt from within. Hard. And Moses and Aaron are blamed. But they're only doing what the Lord told them to do. It's not working out the way anyone thought it would. It's not working out the way anyone thought that it should. Now their own people are turning on them. And the complaints go higher. After being confronted by his own people, Moses turns to the Lord in prayer, okay? It's an honest prayer, but it's not a very good one, in my opinion, anyway. Oh, Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Listen, anytime you put Lord and evil in the same sentence in the prayer, you should think it through, because God's not capable of doing evil. But that's, what's, that's the way we start. I will give him points for honesty. Oh, Lord, why have you done this evil? Why did you ever send me? So the foreman wrongly blamed Moses and Aaron for Pharaoh's overreaction, and now Moses turns to blame God. God hasn't done anything evil. He's not capable of doing anything evil. But you know what? He is sovereign over everything that's happening. He is. He's over it all. So maybe, maybe he's testing the newfound faith of these Israelites to see if it's going to hold up. Or maybe it is his intention to make Egypt so miserable, to make things there so unbearable for Israel that no one would ever want to stay there. And no one will hesitate in a moment when it's time to go. And no one with any memory at all would want to go Sometimes we can understand the afflictions that we endure in this life, the hardships, the things that we um, experience as, as unwanted and unfair as one way for God to keep it fresh in our minds, beloved, that this world is not our home. And we ought to be looking and longing always for the day of our own exodus. The day he brings us out of this sin-stained place into an eternally beautiful and perfect promised land filled with joy. Anyway, Moses doesn't have a grasp on what God is doing. And, and he says so. And he asks the Lord, why did, why did you ever send me? And we've, we went over this a while ago. Five objections he raised when God was calling him. Moses, I got something for you to do. I don't think so. 
Five objections that he raised. Ending, right? Remember with this, please send somebody else. And here we are. Why did you ever send me? It really just feels like a backhanded I told you so. Like his greatest fears coming true. Moses is saying all along, I'm not equipped. I don't speak well. I don't know enough. I don't know who you are. I've got all these reasons. I know I'm going to mess it up. He didn't want to do this thing in the first place. He begged God to send somebody else in. And now because the results are not what he thought they should have been, he questions God's wisdom in the whole thing. As far as he's concerned, uh, he's muddied the waters. He's made matters worse. He did his job. That's what he said. I basically said, listen, I did my job. But for some reason, you haven't done yours. God. I spoke the words I was supposed to speak, but you, you haven't delivered your people at all. I just wonder what Moses was thinking Pharaoh was going to do when he marched into that palace and said, oh, by the way, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go. Did he think that Pharaoh was just going to go, oh, thanks for stopping by, no problem. I'm sure I can find hundreds of thousands of other slaves. I mean, what did he think was going to happen? How did he envision all of it going down? Well, I don't know, but he, not the way it did, right? We do know that. Charges have been leveled against Moses, so he levels charges against God. You have not delivered your people. Sometimes God doesn't show up when we expect he should. Sometimes God just doesn't show up when we wish he would. But we should not confuse that with thinking that he doesn't care. And we should not confuse that with thinking that he doesn't have a grander plan. When the brother of Mary and Martha died from a sickness, both women, who were very good friends of Jesus, said, Lord, you had been here. My brother wouldn't have died. But it was God's will for Lazarus. So that Jesus could raise him from the dead and call him out of the grave as he will one, do, one day do for all of us. He will call us out of the grave. It was God's will for it to happen this way so that everybody standing there and us throughout the ages because it's recorded in the word of God would know that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And that anyone who believes in him, even if he dies, will live. Now, Mary and Martha thought that God's timing was wrong. But we know God's timing. Perfect. Moses questions God's timing. Because the promised rescue hasn't happened and the situation on the ground is going from bad to worse. We've, we were in the frying pan and now we're in the fire, right? But faithfully following the word of God is no guarantee of good immediate results. Know that. Drill that down deep. Doing the right thing is no guarantee of immediate good results. God never told Moses when he was going to deliver the Israelites. He only told him that he was going to deliver the Israelites. Moses became a victim of believing his own timetable. 
that he conjured up in his brain his own sequence of the way he thought things were going to go, and then he tried to hold God to it. And it doesn't work that way. And it remains to be seen how it will work. So we exit chapter 5 at an impasse. Tough times have become tougher for God's people. The worship of God that began in chapter 4 has been quickly tested, and some of it is melting away under the hot sun of tribulation. The people are disappointed in Moses, and Moses is disappointed in God. Turmoil and blame, hostility and chaos are in charge. There is no peace. Why? Because no one is yet able to answer definitively the question Pharaoh posed, who is the Lord? It is a central question of the Exodus. It is a central teaching of the book of Exodus. It is, it is the question that Exodus, the Exodus, answers. Who is the Lord? Who is the one true God? Who is the supreme deity who alone has the right to demand praise from every creature? Who is he? I like the way the old hymn writer put it. He is the God who is able to deliver thee. Though by sin oppressed, go to him for rest. Our God is able to deliver thee. If Moses knew him as well as he would come to know him, he would not be so rattled. He would instead, uh, as the psalmist uh, says, rest like a weaned child upon his mother's breast in the face of things that are just beyond him, too wonderful for him to understand, too marvelous for him to comprehend, but he rests nonetheless because he doesn't have to have all the answers. He knows the God of all answers. And when you and I find ourselves in some of those spots, and we will from time to time, find ourselves in those places of, of, of unrest, of unsettledness, of challenge, where we lack peace, there is something we can do. And that is to know him. That is to press in, to know him, when our nature is telling us to flee. That is to decide to commit to God when our nature is telling us to quit God. There is something we can do when we lack peace, it is to know him. It is to strive to know him more and seek to know him better. No God. No peace. No God. No peace. I want to close this morning by reading a prayer um, by uh, a lady named Rebecca Barlow Jordan. This will be our concluding prayer. I'm going to read it. We're going to treat it like a prayer. So if you might, close your eyes, bow your heads, and pray with me. It's called A Prayer for Peace Within.
Oh, Lord, sometimes my insides feel like a battle zone where missiles are falling too close to home. Other times I'm caught in an endless storm with thoughts flying out of control. Confusion reigns and defeat creeps in to steal my joy. I need your peace. The deep down in your heart kind that stays with me day and night and speaks confidently into the wind. Calm my anxious spirit, Lord. All the attacking if-onlys and what-ifs fill me with needless worry. I know that trust is a big part of experiencing peace and that fear has no place in my life. Most of the things I worry about or dread don't even happen. So I'm declaring my trust in you. I'm releasing the reins of my life again and asking you to take control. I may need to pray this same prayer daily, but I'm tired of the frenzy of life that leaves my schedule and my thoughts without any margin. I need more of you, Lord, and less of me. I surrender and admit I can't control people, plans, or even all my circumstances, but I can yield those things to you and focus on your goodness. Thank you today for every good gift you've given, every blessing you've sent, all the forgiveness I did not deserve, and yes, for every trial you've allowed into my life. You bring good out of every circumstance if I'll only let go and believe you. I know that when I pray and give thanks instead of worrying, you've promised that I can experience the kind of peace that passes all understanding. That's your kind of peace, Lord, and it's the kind I crave. Whenever I'm stressed, anxious, or afraid, help me remember to run to you. You're the only one that can calm my fears and end my fretful behavior. Whether in trivial or heavy matters, I know you will not only give me peace, Lord, you will be my peace. And when I draw close to you in prayer, in reading your word, in helping another, in taking my mind off myself, you will be there, up close, personally. I can't handle these times alone, Lord. Will you speak peace and calm my storms? Or hold my hand while we walk through them together? Will you bring the reassuring wisdom of those who have come through similar times into my life? Thank you, Lord. I am trusting you. In the name of the one who makes the wind and the waves stand still. Amen. Lord bless you.